welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your slice of gaming life from Tokyo. I'm your host, Mono, and on this episode, I'm talking with Otome Game fan and YouTuber Resting Peach Face all about, you guessed it, Otome games. We go deep into the tropes of the genre, what makes a good Otome game, and why the genre has exploded in popularity these past few years. I also check out Buddy Mission Bond, a Nintendo-published Switch game that has yet to leave Japan. What is this mysterious game hiding? And we're on the verge of the summer game season, so why not have some fun with some random Nintendo Direct speculation? I give my thoughts on the swirling rumors and possible announcements we could see this month. Let's jump right into our feature on Otome games with Resting Peach Face. Today's feature is all about Otome games. While the genre is often not discussed in mainstream gaming press, it has a massive presence in Japan and a growing international fan base. Sadly, I am not an Otome game expert, but I know someone who is. So, guest, please introduce yourself. Hello, um, I'm Luli. I'm a huge Otome fan. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but. <laughs> Yeah, so I have a uh, YouTube channel where I basically fangirl over Otome games, and uh, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. For the uninitiated, what are Otome games? So Otome games are basically visual novels, so I guess a genre of a game where you've got a story, you read through it, um, and then occasionally, you know, options come up where, depending on your choices, you'd get a variety of different endings. Um, but an otome game is sort of a subgenre of a visual novel where the main character is female and you have multiple love interests that you kind of see the main character and those love interests develop together within a certain set storyline. So yeah, that's kind of a simple otome game put in a nutshell. How did you discover the genre and why did it strongly connect with you? So... <laughs> This sounds really, this sounds kind of mean. But so one of my very close friends uh, played Otome games. And initially, you know, I actually kind of made fun of her. I'd say, oh my gosh, you're playing these games where there's like these cute guys. Oh my God, you're so, like, I actually was teasing her about it. But then she said, you know, hey, you can't tease me about it unless you try the games yourself. And I said, okay, yes, you do have a point there. So I I believe I tried Hakuoki, which is a game about the Shinsengumi, and it's a historical fiction. And I played the game and thought, you know what? <laughs> I take my words back because I cried so hard on one of the routes, and I have never cried so much from a game before that I thought, okay, it's not just about you know, these sparkly 2D guys it actually has a story. And, and I said to my friend, you know, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have made fun of you. <laughs> and that's actually kind of how I uh, came across the Tommy games. So it's all thanks to her, basically. What are some common gameplay elements of Otome games? So you've got different types of Otome games. The very common one is the visual novel style where you've got, you know, all these, the, the story happens and then options come up where you, you know, depending on your choices, you get different endings. But you also get Otome games where you have gameplay and, um, you know, some companies are more gameplay orientated, shall we say. For example, you've got Ruby Party from Koei Tecmo, who were the very first ones to really start start the otome genre i believe and their games often have a lot of gameplay alongside just the you know reading stuff whereas you get companies like automate where it is primarily at least nowadays anyway a visual novel style where you'd read and then you choose your choices that sort of thing but yeah that would be the play style really the male characters in these games seem to fall into certain archetypes can you tell us more about some of the personalities specific to otome games and which ones are your favorite Basically, any archetype or trope that you get in an anime, you will probably find in Otome games. So you've got mm. things like the 
Kudera character, which are, you know, these really cool, calm, collected guys. But when, then when you get to know them, they have like a soft side. And then you've also got Tsundere characters where you've got this guy that's a bit prickly. He's mean and, you know, he's not very nice. But then occasionally he shows that he likes the main character and gets all like flustered. And, and I guess it's that gap that some people like. And then you've got my absolutely favorite trope, which is the Yandere character. <laughs> and uh, the reason why I laugh is because <laughs> these characters are probably the craziest out of them all in that they basically become so obsessed with the main character that they do extreme things. Now, I'm not going to specify what game because it is a spoiler, but there is a character that literally puts the main character in a dog cage so that she's oh, protected wow. from bad things. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, that's like a classic yandere trope and the reason why i like them is because they are just so unreal it's just it's kind of like i always say it's kind of like watching a horror movie or a playing a horror game you know you wouldn't want to be in that situation but it's interesting seeing how the story you know (laughs) reveals itself (laughs) and see what's happened basically right like how is this woman supposed to fall in love with somebody who puts her into a dog cage (laughs) You wouldn't normally, but it it sort of happens. I mean, you know, when you look at the psyche of the character, it starts to sort of make a little bit more sense. But, you know, in real, it would be a red flag and you would run away as quickly as possible. (laughs) Is the appeal of Otome games in the romance, the plot, or is it a bit of both? So I think it really depends from person to person. Some people are like, if there's no romance, I don't want to play it. Other people are like, oh, I don't really care about the romance. You know, I just want the story. And then you've got people who like a balance. I personally like a balance where, so the romance is kind of important in that. I think it's quite nice seeing, you know, two characters develop together. But if the story's not that great, I'm not going to be able to, I, I don't think I can really read the whole thing because I just kind of, yeah, I kind of fall asleep. So I personally think the balance is really important. Um, but yeah, it really depends on who you are and what you're looking for, I think. What separates a great Otome game from the rest? Hmm. I think a great Otome game for me is ones that have in my case, bad endings that leave a deep impression. Those are the games that I look back and go, oh, wow, that was an amazing experience, especially if they build it up correctly. I mean, different Otome games, you know, fit different purposes. For example, if you've got a really long game, like, you know, from Otome, things like Code Realize or Column Malice, um, you're going to be spending about 50 hours on the game. And uh, that could be quite intense for some people. Whereas you've got things like voltage games where the stories aren't necessarily deep or, you know, it, it is more like a lot of people call it a uh, fast food otome game <laughs> because they're quite short, brief. They are on like mobile as well. They were originally a mobile uh, company. So, um, you know, you've got these little short stories which you can read really quickly between like, if if you're really busy working, for example, you know, you don't really want to be spending too many hours on a game. So it really, it depends on what you're looking for. But yeah, for me, I like the deeper ones, the ones that go into the itty gritty details and the ones that isn't just, you know, a happily ever after, but has sort of bittersweet endings where, you know, not everyone's necessarily happy or, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know how I I, I went on a bit of a tangent. (laughs) Do you have any general tips on how to play an Otome game? As as the, uh, you know, the ones that are mostly localized and are available in English, there are, of course, the visual novel style where, you know, you pick the options and then end up wherever you've got different ways so you can go in blind which is where you just pick whatever options that you like and then see where you end up Uh, but you can also if you're the type of person that wants to let's say avoid all bad endings or you want to go through the process really smoothly then I would use a walkthrough because there are quite a few walkthroughs out there that kind of specify what choices will lead you to where so um, those are the kind of two ways in which I will play depending on what and how difficult the game is because you've got something like Birushana Rising Flower of Genpe, which is going to be released later in June, um, where there are three parameters. And to this day, I'm really not sure what the parameters (laughs) 
do. So I use the walkthrough for that. Um, whereas something like, let's say, Cupid Parasite, it actually shows when you've got the correct answer. Um, so you don't really need a walkthrough to kind of go down the good route because it will show you when you've picked the happy answer, shall we say. Do Otome gamers try to get every ending or do most of them just play through it one time? It depends on who you are. There are quite a few completionists, uh, including myself. Basically, I think, you know, I have heard of quite a few people, though, who aren't so fond of bad endings because they're quite heartbreaking and whatnot, in which case there is a force skip function, which is where you literally skip through all of the text and then pick the right options so that you collect all the CGs. The CGs are the um, artwork that pops up during important events. So uh, although... A lot of us are completionists. I think that, you know, one of my friends, for example, she doesn't really like um, certain routes, in which case she will just simply not play them. She will just skip the whole route, but collect all the CGs. So technically you've completed it, but you haven't actually read it, if, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> what are some of your favorite Otome games or game developers? My favorite Otome game, localized Otome game, would probably be Cupid Parasite. Um, this is a game about the main character who is Cupid. She uh, comes down to the human world in human form to prove to her father that she is able to matchmake as a human just as well as she could as a god. And in a way to prove this, she needs to basically be promoted. And one day the CEO brings to her five um, guys that are absolutely hopeless and can't be matchmade no matter how hard all the others try and say that if she matchmakes them, then she will get a promotion. And they even have the nickname Parasite Five and they really truly are hopeless. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a rom-com and I think it's one of those games where none of the bad endings are really bad. So you can really sit down and relax. Um, so that's that's one of my favorites. Another is actually an unlocalized game, so not available in English, at least for now anyway. And it's a game called Shuen no Virushu. Um, this one, on the other hand, is definitely, most definitely not a rom-com. It's actually renowned for being one of the most sort of despair-ridden games because you have to complete all the bad endings before you can even play the good endings which are questionable whether they're good or not and um, it's about this girl who causes people around her to die she's sort of cursed or something and she lives in a world where everyone sort of passes away by the age of 23 and this is the world that they live in and it's kind of like got a fantasy element but alongside a sci-fi element and just all the roots are really depressing. But I think the reason why I like it so much is because it's told in such a fairy tale setting, but with sci-fi elements. And I think they did the mix really well and, and the artwork is really pretty. <laughs> As for um, companies that I particularly like developers, I would probably say my favorite Otome game developer is a developer called Regit. They're renowned for making some of the craziest Otome games. Uh, one of them is the infamous Diabolic Lovers. Don't watch the anime. The anime is terrible. <laughs> the game itself is about these vampires that have incredibly, they have issues mentally, um, let's just say, and they're really sadistic and I feel really sorry for the main character. But I think... I mean, I personally have only played one of them, but I think it was interesting going through each of the love interests' life and how they ended up the way they are. And Regia also does other games, but they are all just really crazy. You know, you read them and you go, what, sorry, how? <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so that's probably my favorite uh, developer, although I think the majority of Otome games that everyone will know of will be from Automate, so... That's kind of like the go-to company when it comes to your typical Otome games. Otome games seem to have a lot of different settings. What are some of the more popular types of settings? Hmm, I guess you do have like very typical tropes, you know, um, and genres, for example. I think one of the biggest Otome game franchises is Hakuoki, which is uh, about the Shinsengumi. That is a historical uh, fiction. So I guess people enjoy it in that they can learn a couple of things here and there. And also because it's based on real life events, it can feel quite real. And, and some of the situations are heartbreaking that sort of thing um and then obviously you've got like 
typical tropes. It was literally the other day that I was talking about how I really want to play a childhood friend route because there's always, you know, in, in an atomic game, there's always this popular childhood friend trope where you see the childhood friend really like the main character, but he can't say it. And there's this like bittersweet feel. And it was literally only the other day that I was talking about this with a couple of my friends that I really, <laughs> really want to play a game with that sort of thing in it. They are so, there are so many tropes though that are so popular. I, it, I'd be here forever if I were to list them all, if that makes sense. Let's talk about Even If Tempest, which comes out in a few days on the Switch. Why are people so hyped for this game? So firstly, it's by Voltage, which normally actually do uh, mobile games. So the fact that they have made or, you know, have chosen to make a game literally just for the Switch um, is a completely new thing in itself. Not to mention it's going to be fully voiced, again, something that we did not expect from Voltage. And the cast is pretty good. And, you know, when you look at the scenario writers and, and the staff that are involved in it, they're actually... There are quite a few that were hired by um, Idea Factory. And so it's almost like we've got an Idea Factory game here, but under a different developer, which is a which is really interesting. So there's that that's kind of caused the interest as well. But then there's the story, which is truly angsty and and there's from the looks of it gameplay elements where it will almost be like um Danganronpa where you know you've got like a witch trial and you have to kind of see who the per like the person is and and all this deductive stuff and I'm I'm really looking forward to it because I haven't really come across a localized otome game you know like this where it has gameplay elements and as someone who adores Danganronpa and Among Us and all those games where you have to figure out who the um, <laughs> betrayer whatever is uh, it's just it's right up my street and I think that's how a lot of people feel about it as well um but yeah definitely I think the main thing is that it's by voltage but on the switch and then with a really different kind of feel as well yeah I don't know it's it, there's quite a few uh quite a few reasons and um I'm really excited about it I must admit the gameplay honestly I'm just I'm really curious to see how they managed to pull that off Are there Otome games based on things like anime and novels or are most Otome games completely original works I believe most uh, Otome games are original works. However, you do get some where they are based off of the anime. For example, you've got Dance with Devils, which originally was an anime and then it was turned into an Otome game. So, you know, it, it depends. Although I think the majority is just original. And sometimes then you get animes based off of the Otome game. The Switch has become a prominent platform for Otome games. Why do you think this came to be and has it broadened the appeal of the genre? This is just my speculation, but I feel like the reason why Otome games seem to be more sort of popular on the Switch or on the PS Vita previously um, is because I guess that a lot of them are sort of like books and um, because, you you know, you, you read a lot of it and obviously books are something that you have in your hand and you kind of read on the page if you know what I mean this is pure speculation by the way <laughs> but I think that could be why and also Otome games have this really weird stigma for some reason that it's just about pretty sparkly 2D guys and you know I mean I made fun of my friend put it that way and even though I'm an Otome fan now um, so I guess with that stigma a lot of people perhaps prefer to play it on you know a handheld console where it's a little bit more you know confined to yourself saying that I have heard of people playing it docked on a massive screen and apparently that has its uh, benefits as well so maybe you know with Switch you have that option which makes it um, a nice experience as well. What are some Otome games to look out for in 2022? Okay so right <laughs> get my list out. So um, you've got Birushana Rising Flower of Genpe uh, coming out at the end of June, which is um, a historical fiction. It's based a little after the Heian period, I believe. It's about this girl who is the heir to, or, you know, the son of the head of the Minamoto clan, 
uh, except she's, you know, pretending to be a boy the entire time because she's supposed to be a guy. And, and it's kind of her life and how she's having to deal with her situation and all of that. Uh, lots of fighting, lots of blood. <laughs> and um, you've got good endings and tragic endings. And the tragic endings, oh, some of them are so good. Um, but that's the very much anticipated one. You also have uh, Lover Pretend, which is a rom-com about a girl looking for a father. Uh, and she ends up having to pretend to be um, lovers with a bunch of different love interests for various reasons. And it, it, it is quite, it's quite amusing. Uh, you've got the Amnesia Switchport coming out. And as well as its fan disc, that was really surprising because no one thought that the fan disc and, and by fan disc, I mean, so normally in Otome Games, you have the main, you know, story. And sometimes if the game was popular enough, you get something called the fan disc, which is sort of like the after story or bonus stories and things like that. Amnesia's uh, fan disc, you know, in Japan has been out for a while. So I think everyone had given up on its uh, English release by this point. But so we're very pleasantly surprised when you learned about that. Uh, we've got Paradigm Paradigm. I'm going to stop because there's too many. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. In terms of localization for Otome games, do you feel there have been more localized Otome games these past few years? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I'm actually surprised at how many we have been getting because honestly the atomic community got you know literally nothing for years and years and years if we got one release it was kind of like a everyone's jumping around and being surprised and amazed and celebrating type of thing whereas now it's like we've got atomic games coming out every couple of months you know which as, as I said it, it was um, unbelievable so we're, we're really excited by how it's kind of bloomed and you know the community's grown and and it's still a niche genre but it's nice to be able to talk about it with more people and see more localizations especially because there's so many good games that we don't get um, in English, unfortunately. Uh, but obviously, as the Tommy community grows, we've got a higher chance of getting those localizations. So, <laughs> right. yeah, the excitement is crazy. Thank you for joining me today. So, Luli, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, obviously, but my main platform is YouTube. I'm called Resting Peach Face. And uh, yeah, I do lots of Otome content, whether that be uh, reviews or, you know, Otome game compilations or vlog type videos or basically anything Otome related. You can also find me on Twitch where I play normal games, um, but that's kind of on a much less regular basis than, you know, on YouTube where I also stream Otome games. So that's where you will find me. Great. And listeners, I'll link all those in the podcast description. Luli, Resting Peach Face, once again, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Once again, thanks to Resting Peach Face for sharing her insight on Otome games. Now, let's get into some games. I don't have an Otome game to talk about but I do have something closer than you'd imagine. I'm talking about Buddy Mission Bond, an adventure game slash visual novel published by who? That's right, Nintendo. Nintendo made this game available to play for free during Golden Week to NSO subscribers. Buddy Mission Bond is quite the oddity as it is the only Nintendo published game on the Switch that hasn't left Japan yet. Even Brain Age got a European release. Japan still has the voucher system, where you can spend about $100 to get two Nintendo-published games, and Buddy Mission Bond is one of those titles. It sits right next to Pokemon, right next to Animal Crossing in that list. The developer is Koi Tecmo, more specifically Ruby Party. Yes, the Otome game developer. It's all coming together. They're perhaps most famous for the Angelique series, which does have entries on the Switch. Ruby Party was established in 1990 and has had a pretty consistent game output, so they've definitely made a major mark on the Japanese gaming scene. Buddy Mission Bond definitely has some unusual ingredients. You've got Nintendo, a major publisher. 
Ruby Party, a very successful yet niche developer that makes a certain type of game, and the artist for Buddy Mission Bond is done by Yusuke Murata, the artist behind Ice Show 21 and One Punch Man. I don't know who had the eureka moment to put all these elements together, but the pieces were put in place and now we have Buddy Mission Bond. Why wasn't this released in the West? The visual novel or point-and-click adventure genre certainly isn't a major seller in the West. Considering this game almost entirely revolves around text and voice acting, it is a much heavier localization project than, say, Nintendo Switch Sports. The game also didn't light up the sales charts in Japan either, so if Nintendo was on the fence about the game and wanted to see if it was worth localizing, well, I'm guessing they hopped right off that fence. It's still not impossible for this game to hit the West. Maybe as the Switch winds down and production shifts towards making games for its successor, a gap-filler title like Buddy Mission Bond would be beneficial for the Western market. There's a lot of interesting context around the game, but the title itself is also very intriguing. Calling it a visual novel might give you the wrong impression. When I think of visual novels, I definitely think of a static background with character portraits going back and forth with the dialogue. That is still here, but it's also filled with minigames, puzzles, and a dynamic presentation that makes the game feel like an interactive manga instead of a novel. The game's strongest point is easily its presentation. The art is amazing, with cool characters and dynamic panels that make even tame speaking segments kinetic and exciting. There's also a lot of great music and voice acting, so it feels like it has a much higher production budget than most visual novels. The most important element of these games is, of course, the story, the characters, but you don't want to just read a book. You want some style. You want some pizzazz in your video game. You star as the blandly named Luke Williams, a young city cop who wants nothing more than to be a hero. You're drawn into a case that involves a violent thief that stole an incredibly valuable diamond. Of course, since it's part police procedural and part mystery drama, there may be more than meets the eye when it comes to the story. I don't want to ruin it, but there are villains who may be heroes, heroes who may be villains, conspiracies, cover-ups, all that fun stuff. No, it actually has nothing to do with James Bond, as the Bond in this game refers to the connection or relationship between Luke and the other characters he brings on the missions. I only got through the first two chapters, so I didn't really get to see this system in action to its full extent. The first mission is really a tutorial where you go at it alone and familiarize yourself with the game mechanics, but in the next chapter, you do get a buddy. Later on, you apparently get to pick between several people, which could impact the story. And yeah, the story is the most important since the game is practically all story. The vast majority of your time will be spent listening to dialogue or reading it. However, the game does throw a lot of diverse challenges at the player. It's broken up into story segments, questioning where you explore a map to find clues, and infiltration where you sneak into a base. But even within those, there are many games you encounter, so it doesn't feel as rigid as you would expect. The game wants you to pay very close attention, as it often quizzes you on past info during dialogue. Answering questions correctly or completing the other minigames affects your hero gauge. This doesn't do much except give you a ranking at the end, but that does unlock some side missions and content, so you want to try to get an S ranking every time. The game is not punishing at all. It's definitely a sit-back-and-enjoy-the-ride type of game. Even if you get a question wrong, it doesn't really affect the story. You just get scolded a bit and then you're told the right answer. It knocks a bit off your hero gauge, but if you really only care about the main story and aren't aiming for 100%, just try your best and don't worry about mistakes. Some questions are very lenient, allowing you to remember back to a previous scene in order to fetch the answer. One of the more dramatic question segments is the wonderfully named Thinking Time, where you need to pick between three similar sounding answers. The investigation throws you into an overworld map where you can visit different places and question people for clues. These clues are necessary in order to start the infiltration mission. Typically, there are multiple ways to infiltrate a place, and the clues you gather determine your route. You can aim for a specific one, but sometimes it can be hard to predict who gives you what info. You also need to be careful on the map as to not waste turns exploring, since you do have sort of a par system you want to score under. When you get a buddy, you can also determine who should speak to a person. Luke is clever and calm, but the first buddy you unlock, Aaron, is brash and violent. So if you're just questioning a receptionist, Luke is the way to go. But need to wring some info out of some goons? Time for Aaron. Again, you can't pick wrong here. If you choose Luke for an Aaron investigation, for example, 
Aaron will just interrupt you. You can technically mess up the questioning if you choose the wrong answer, but you can just go back and do it again. Some people who want a tougher challenge might dislike this leniency, but I think it makes the game much more accessible. You don't want to stress out about potentially locking yourself out of part of the story. Once you get all the info you need to start your sneaking mission, you begin the infiltration mode. This is actually in full 3D, and you control your character on the map. But there's no real action, you just go to points of interest and then interact with them. When an action scene does pop up, it's really just QTEs. Although Luke's weapon is a gun, he really just clubs people with it. Aaron, on the other hand, has these Wolverine claws that he is very liberal about using. The game continues this flow for the main missions, but there are also side missions that are much more dialogue heavy. These aren't necessary, but flesh out the characters more and serve as your main reward for doing well in the story mode. The actual gameplay elements are pretty simple. It's mostly just answering questions, doing QTEs, or finding points of interest. It does have a bit more than I was expecting, but at least early on, it doesn't have you doing anything creative in how you interact with the scene. But like many visual novels, the main draw is the story and characters. It's engaging early on. There's a good balance of humor and seriousness. You fight a rapper who yells, rap never die, and then you start investigating a conspiracy that may have targeted your father. You've got to get that ebb and flow just right if you want to keep people playing. Luke and Aaron have a very odd couple gimmick, and I'm sure the later characters also bring in their own distinct personalities and histories. Luke is pretty likable and affable, plus he's a very sharp dresser. One funny thing is that when you start an infiltration mission, you and your buddy change outfits. These are not more tactically advantageous, but instead far more stylish and cooler than your default clothes. I guess style is its own weapon. Am I going to buy the full game? Probably not. I enjoyed what I played, but it didn't really make me want to find out what happens next ASAP. Plus, I have a crippling backlog, so I don't really need to add more on to it. I'm glad I was able to give it a chance, though. I can definitely see this game having its fans, and its stellar art definitely would hook people who normally don't give games like this a chance. If you live in the West, just make that summoning circle for Buddy Mission Bond, and it will eventually come out. Well, it's June, and that means we're getting into the E3 season. Although there's technically not an E3 this year, but, you know, it's time to announce some big video games. There's no real analogous E3 event for Japan in the summer, so a lot of Japanese gamers affix their eyes on the West to get the latest news about huge Japanese franchises. We've got Summer Games Fest, State of Play, the Xbox slash Bethesda slash Activision Blizzard slash whatever they just bought right before I recorded this digital event. And of course, we've got the Nintendo Direct. I'm recording this a bit early, but I have to assume that they have already announced or shown a June 2022 Nintendo Direct by the next episode, so I want to get in my predictions now. My goal is to get at least one thing correct. If I can do that, hey, I've gone above and beyond. Let's look at the Nintendo calendar for the rest of the year. Mario Strikers Battle League comes out in a few days, and that might have some light presence at E3. Maybe they'll announce the first DLC character. A lot of people want Daisy, but I want Pauline over her. Nothing against Daisy, but Pauline needs to be shoved into every Mario game from here on out. Both will probably pop up before the year is done, so don't worry. The developer is Next Level Games, who worked on the Luigi's Mansion series, so maybe they might add some of those characters into the game. Luigi would be a lot of fun. He could have completely different abilities from the rest of the cast. And maybe even King Boo, the one with the jewel crown, the real King Boo. Professor Egad with the Poltergust could also open up some creative opportunities. Not sure if you could bring a weapon onto the field, but I'm sure they'll bend the rules for him. June also has Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes, which will undoubtedly get a new trailer. Fire Emblem Three Houses was my game of the year in 2019, but nothing can make me care about a Musou. Not Fire Emblem, not Zelda, not Pokemon, nothing. I do think this won't be the only Fire Emblem game this year, though. I fully believe Intelligent Systems has a completely new Fire Emblem title ready to go for 2022. Intelligent Systems has released at least one game per year on Nintendo hardware since 1998, and this year won't be any different. We've had Fire Emblem, Paper Mario, WarioWare, it's time to loop back around to Fire Emblem. Many have speculated on a remake of the fourth FE game, which never came out in the West, but I think enough time has passed for a new game. 
there's been a rumor that Gust may be involved with this title. Koi Tecmo worked on three houses, and they own Gust, so it's not an impossibility. Gust is most known for the Atelier series, and they've put out quite a few titles on Switch. New FE from IS 2022. It's happening. I do think we will eventually get a remake before the Switch wraps up. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if Intelligent Systems has a 2023 Fire Emblem title that is an FE4 remake. Like they did with Echoes, it would be a game to release in the twilight years of the system using existing assets. I can see an October release date. It gives the game some time to breathe before the big holiday releases and enough of a gap after Splatoon. July has Live Alive and Xenoblade 3. Not sure what else you can really say about Live Alive. Nintendo has been publishing videos showcasing the setting and gameplay fairly frequently, so it's not like it's lacking promotion. Xenoblade 3 has similarly been getting a big advertising push, with new videos hitting every week. I can see a bit of a showcase on Xenoblade 3, including a new trailer. I feel like Nintendo is focusing more on Xenoblade hardcores than newcomers for this third game. They haven't really promoted the idea that Xenoblade 3 is a good starting point, but like the second game, I doubt you need to know the entire picture in order to enjoy the game. September is Splatoon 3, which will undoubtedly be one of the biggest Switch games this year. Especially in Japan. I still think it could have the biggest opening week ever in Japan if the marketing pushes strong enough and if there are positive early impressions. Nintendo has to nail the test fire, maybe even have more than one. The advertising campaign for Splatoon 2 in Japan was really something to experience. Tower Records had their entire storefront completely redone to look like a building straight out of the game. 7-Eleven also had a Splatoon collaboration. I'd see people walking around with Splatoon shirts or playing it on the train. Hopefully this new title can replicate that atmosphere. We will absolutely get a new trailer or maybe even a showcase on a completely new mode that we haven't seen before. Battle Royale? I know a lot of people want that, and I'm sure Nintendo could come up with a really creative way to implement it into Splatoon. I will say that I don't think that we will get new idols here. I think they're going to be revealed closer to launch. Believe it or not, they didn't show Pearl or Marina until two weeks before Splatoon 2 came out. It's pretty crazy to hide such prominent characters until just a few days before launch, but Nintendo has done it before. The June Direct will have some good bits of info, but a lot will be held off until a specific Splatoon 3 Direct in August, in my opinion. Bayonetta 3 is still on the docket for this year, but it doesn't have a date. Well, now's the time to reveal that. October seems the most logical, right? Maybe you could do Fire Emblem in early October and Bayonetta closer to Halloween. That gives both games a bit of a running start before Pokemon. No matter where you put Bayonetta, there's always the fear that it could get buried or ignored, but you gotta put it out somewhere. Now, there's two games that are in quasi-limbo. Mario and Rabbit Sparks of Hope was announced at last year's E3, but we've heard nothing from it since then. This seems like another title that could easily be knocked into 2023. There was actually a several-month gap between the US and Japanese release date of the first title, with Japan not getting it until early 2018. The other game that will hopefully come out one day is Advance Wars 1 Plus 2 Reboot Camp. Originally slated for December 2021, it was pushed back to April 2022. Then, due to the war in the Ukraine, it has an ominous TDB release date. I'm not sure how you could release this game without making someone a bit angry. If you release it with zero promotion, you are kind of shooting yourself in the foot in terms of the money you could be making. But if you make a huge push for the game, it could draw a lot of criticism. But they can't just shelve it forever. I'm not sure if it will have any E3 presence, but I can see it coming out maybe in August, with some marketing happening after E3. That gives it some time to get back on people's radar. Alright, time to unleash the random guesses. I already threw out Fire Emblem from IS. One heavily rumored game is the sequel to 1-2-Switch, possibly titled Everybody's 1-2-Switch. This rumor originally came from journalist Emily Rogers. It's supposedly more of a Jackbox title than the motion control wackiness of the first game. Apparently, it may not be very good and was supposed to have a pretty sudden release date after announcement, possibly in May. But May is over and we still haven't heard anything from it. EBD4 just put out Nintendo Switch Sports, so it's kind of hard to imagine them releasing two games in the same year. However, an Ask the Developer article recently revealed that Switch Sports had a years-long development cycle. So the team, which put out 1-2-Switch before Switch Sports, 
has obviously been working on other projects in conjunction with Nintendo Switch Sports. As for a release date, maybe a Shadow Drop. It's a title that could benefit more from word of mouth than reviews. So just say, hey, Nintendo Jackbox is out now, and I'm sure you could grab more than a few people. Conversely, throwing it out in December near Christmas could also be beneficial as casual titles have found success there. And don't count out other casual titles. Tomodachi Life sold nearly 7 million copies on the 3DS, and given the success of Animal Crossing, another title in that franchise could be announced this month. Miitopia sold above expectations and introduced some incredibly detailed Mii customization, and that feature perfectly suits Tomodachi Life. And of course, Nintendogs. This was a landmark game for the DS, and the sequels on the 3DS still sold several million copies. Nintendogs and Tomodachi Life are easy 5 million plus sellers in my mind, so I don't think Nintendo will just sit on them for much longer. I wouldn't be surprised to see one of them in this month's Direct. I'm also a bit curious about Pikmin. I don't see an announcement here, but Pikmin 3 Deluxe sold very well and the franchise got some new exposure thanks to Pikmin Bloom. Pikmin 4 has been rumored forever and you have to think that it will eventually come true. I'm not sure if they would just straight up call it Pikmin 4 though. Now would be a great time to mix up the series. How about an open world Pikmin? Breath of the Bulborb. I have no idea how that game would work. I just wanted to say that name. Another heavily rumored game is a new Donkey Kong title from not retro, but from one of the EPD teams. It will likely be a 2.5D title similar to the country games and not Odyssey or 3D World. Kind of mixed feelings on this one. I'm not a big DKC fan. Tropical Freeze is legit good, but I would still put it below most 2D Mario games. I'm not quite sure why EPD would want to do a DK game unless they had a very specific idea for it. A Donkey Kong game from Nintendo would be a big release for the holiday along with Pokemon. But again, where do you put it? In November with Pokemon? That's a bit crowded. December? That makes a bit more sense. Another release could be either the Wind Waker or Twilight Princess remasters from the Wii U days. Or both. We aren't getting a Zelda this year, so maybe having something in between could help fill the gap. But I can also see these titles being thrown out near the end of the Switch's lifespan as developers start to focus on games for the Switch's successor. Is it smart to put out a Zelda remaster six months before a brand new game? I don't think so. And speaking of Zelda, I do think we will see Breath of the Wild 2 again. It'll finally get a name at least, but I doubt they'll do a deep dive until next year. But a name and maybe a hint at some other gameplay elements outside of the sky would be enough for me. It's a big enough announcement to close out the show, but if they do that, we will have had three different June Directs that ended with Breath of the Wild 2. 2019, 2021, and 2022. The game is that important, but it's still pretty crazy to think about. The first Breath of the Wild had a big showcase at E3 nine months before the release, and the same could happen this year. But I think Zelda's June Direct presence will just be a new trailer with the name, and that's enough to carry it until perhaps the September or October Direct, where we will see more of it, and likely one more Direct next year before it launches in March or April 2023. Any guesses for the name? You can't say Breath of the Sky. I forbid it. Nintendo typically has some big Nintendo Switch Online announcement in their June Directs, and this year will be no different. I'm thinking Game Boy and Game Boy Advance Online will be added to the NSO service. Maybe GB for the base and GBA for the expansion pack. We got the emulator leaks a few months ago, and it's the next big thing they could add to the service. The well is pretty dry when it comes to NES and SNES games, and you can only release one in 64 game per month for so long. I'm most curious about how the Pokemon titles will be integrated into the service, or if they'll be included at all. Will Game Freak be okay with Pokemon just being one of many games on an app, along with features like save states and rewind functionality? Would they want to make the app compatible with Pokemon Home? Or maybe Game Freak wants their own classic Pokemon app that will be completely separate as part of the expansion pack. It seems ridiculous to have an NSO app only for old Pokemon games, but if any franchise can get away with it, it's Pokemon. A separate Pokemon app that doesn't have any of the rewind functionality or save state features, but with Pokemon Home integration, that might be a more appealing idea for Game Freak. A lot of people would be angry, but I think enough would consider it to be an appealing inclusion in the expansion pack. Speaking of expansion pack, 
I'm sure we'll get a new batch of Mario Kart 8 tracks soon. It might even be a shadow drop. Waluigi's Pinball is coming, you gotta believe. As for other DLC, they'll show off Nintendo Switch Sports Golf and maybe some other sports like basketball and dodgeball. As a side note, this is the first E3 since 2017 with no Smash. 2018 was the announcement, and every E3 since then had DLC fighter showcases. Last year's E3 opened up with Kazuya being added to Smash. Honestly, that feels like it happened so long ago. A Smashless E3? Say it ain't so. Those announcements took up a big chunk of the Direct, so I wonder if this year's will be shorter than normal. One weird thing I want to throw out is the possibility of a Kirby Game & Watch. 2020 had Mario, 2021 had Zelda, so why not have a Kirby one? The franchise has had a number of prominent 8-bit games, and this is an anniversary year. If they still have that hardware laying around, you might as well get some use out of it. Most of my predictions have been surrounding established IPs, but I would love to see Nintendo get more experimental and continue rounding out the robust IP collection. What are the biggest original IPs on the Switch? Through pure sales, it's actually Ring Fit Adventure. A great game, but it's not a title you can pump out every few years, along with spin-offs. Nintendo has everyone's attention, so I think it's the perfect time to introduce some new characters, new ideas, that can stand next to Mario, next to Pokemon. I've mostly been focusing on Nintendo announcements, but there are probably plenty of third-party games that will fill the show. Is there some PS3 360 title that has yet to hit the hardware? Fallout 3? Throw that on Switch. 3D Dot Game Heroes? That game was actually published by From Software in Japan, and the developer, Silicon Studio, is still around. Put that Elden Ring money to good use. Third-party games are always really tough to guess. Last year's E3 had Worms Rumble and Astria Ascending in the showcase. Not exactly titles that shook us to the core. Demon Slayer comes out in early June, so maybe that might get a trailer reminding us that, hey, that game's out. Square will probably have a showcase in June, or piggyback on Sony's event, but we might see something from the publisher here. Final Fantasy Tactics Remaster has been in the NVIDIA leak, and I'd love to see that. FFT is a day one purchase as long as they don't horribly botch it. 2022 is pretty weird in general, since we knew so much about Nintendo's lineup before this year even started. It's pretty packed, and it's hard to imagine they'll wedge even more into the year, but Nintendo likely has a handful of big surprises for this year's June Direct. By the time the next episode comes out, we will have likely seen the June Direct, so I'll give my rundown on all the goodies then. Now, let's look at some news. The calm before the storm. The quiet before not E3. I guess next episode's news rundown will be a lot longer, but there's some stuff to talk about this time too. For one, we got a brand new trailer for Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Not a Pokemon Presents, so no new big announcements, but we still got a better look at the Gen 9 games coming this year. November 18th, to be exact. A pretty predictable release date, right before Black Friday. The trailer introduced new characters, Pokemon, and gave some hints at their open world structure and the online gameplay. For the first time ever, there are version-specific professors. Scarlet has Professor Sada, who looks like a cavewoman with a lab coat. I'm getting serious Ayla from Chrono Trigger vibes here. Violet has Professor Turo, who sports a beard in a futuristic jumpsuit. I can't imagine their story roles will be that different, but they certainly look like they have very distinct personalities. Your rival seems to be an older girl named Nimona. She has sort of a distinctive glove. I thought it was a robot arm like an MGS5 at first, but sadly it's not. Characters are one thing, but we're here for the Pokemon. Five new Pokemon were revealed. There's the grass normal type Smoliv, which looks like, you know, a small olive? A lot of the Pokemon have food themes, and it seems to be a major theme of this region. It's called Minibu in Japanese, which is a mix of Mini and Olive, or Oribu. There's also Pami, Pamo in Japanese, an electric type. It's probably this region's Pikachu clone. It kind of looks like a chipmunk or chinchilla, just a rodent. I'm glad the Route 1 rodent actually has a type outside of normal this time. And of course, the all-star Lechonk. It's Guruton in Japanese, which is a pretty clever name since it mixes gourmet, pork, and glutton. It's a fat black pig, and yeah, it looks delicious. He looks like he has a bit of mustard under his eyes. This is the Pokemon that garnered the most talk online, mostly because of its name. 
the design is actually quite plain, so I wonder if people would care as much if it had a less silly name. One thing that's not plain are the legendaries, Koraidon and Miraidon. Koraidon is a big red iguana-looking bipedal dragon, and Miraidon looks like an Asian-style dragon. And it's also kind of a robot with pixel eyes. Korai is ancient and Mirai is future in Japanese. So like with the professors, we have a major past versus future type of theme here. It's a pretty interesting premise for a Pokemon game. The setting is really inspired. You've got the Iberian Peninsula, food, and now time. It'll be interesting to see how they blend all these different themes together. I thought the legendaries were pretty overdesigned at first, but they've grown on me. You want the legendaries to look a bit gaudy and spectacular. I'm picking up Violet, and I definitely prefer Miraidon. One rumor surrounding these legendaries is that you will be able to ride them as you explore the open world, and they may even be able to change forms. Both of them do look like motorcycles, or at least vehicles, so I think this rumor has some merit. And when it comes to exploring the open world, the official site says you are free to visit places without being solely dictated by the story. We still don't know exactly how open it will be. Is it going to be like Breath of the Wild, where you can literally go wherever? Will there be level scaling that allows people to do gyms out of order? Or is there actually a set gym order? It's certainly an exciting idea, something I've wanted in Pokemon forever, but I'll remain skeptical until they reveal more. One curious omission from the trailer was the lack of a region name. I'm not sure why they would hide that, but this also means that they didn't reveal the map. I'm wondering if it will be revealed that there is really just one big city hub, with the rest being small towns and outposts like in Arceus. It would be disappointing for there to just be one main hub area with the rest being wilderness. It did work for Arceus, but that game has a completely different structure than a traditional Pokemon title. Though for an open world game, do you really want to see the map ahead of time? That sort of ruins the discovery. Imagine if you looked at Elden Ring's entire map before playing. I feel a bit of the mystique would be lost. They also showed that four players can explore the world, which is a very exciting feature. Hanging out with friends, either local or online, and walking around the same Pokemon world sounds amazing. The trailer shows everyone in completely different areas, so you can explore without needing to tag along with your buddy. I wonder how this will work. Will it be friends only? Can I play with randoms? If I am playing Violet, can I jump into a Scarlet game and catch those Pokemon? Or will it be some strange instant thing where everyone is technically in their own world but can see other players? I wonder if there will be more co-op focused missions or challenges too. They experimented with this heavily in Sword and Shield, but it never felt like you were really working together. Instead, it was just four people kind of doing their own thing without any feedback from other players. I like to see a greater amount of interaction between the online players. The trailer actually didn't reveal as much as I thought it would, compared to the June 2019 trailer for Sword and Shield. That trailer showed new Pokemon, the region, Dynamax, raid battles, the champion, and so much more. The marketing for Gen 9 will likely ramp up around August, so until then, let's just stare at fan art of Lechonk. Staying on the Pokemon train, Junichi Masuda has switched jobs. He is going from the managing director of Game Freak to the chief creative fellow at the Pokemon Company. Masuda has completely changed companies, Although it's all part of the Pokemon Pie, and Game Freak owns part of TPC, it's complicated. He is essentially going from a role of producing games to focusing on the brand as a whole, including non-game endeavors. As a comparison point, Miyamoto also has the Creative Fellow title at Nintendo. Miyamoto is not really involved with the games anymore, instead focusing on other media endeavors like theme parks and movies. This is a big shift for Masuda, but not one that is sudden. Game Freak has certainly been cultivating new people to take over the reins of Pokemon. The last game Masuda directed was Let's Go, and before that XY. So we are nearing 10 years since the last time he helmed a new generation. Masuda actually doesn't even have a producer credit on Legends Arceus. I think it goes without saying that this new job title is one that has been in the works for a long time. He's worked on every main game in some capacity, and directed Gens 3 to 6. He's directed more Gens than any other director, although I guess Omori will catch him sooner than later. Masuda definitely gets a lot of the blame for Pokemon Woes, but obviously he is not the sole person responsible for whatever new feature they add or subtract. I don't think him moving to a new position is a good or bad thing. I don't feel like he was holding Pokemon back or anything, 
but it does make me feel old to see all these people that worked on the early gens move on to different positions where they are hands-off with the game. But hey, it happens. These series move on. They made a Kirby game without Sakurai. Many of them, in fact. Hey, guess what? There's new Pokemon merch. Shocking, I know. Pokemon card game? Japanese YouTuber Hajime Shacho and Japanese clothing brand Granif have combined all their powers to bring us a triple collaboration centering on the mischievous Pichu card. Look up the art for this card. It's really great. Granif is putting out some new Pokemon t-shirts featuring this design, and the actual card itself will be available at Granif's main shop in Harajuku and in Pokemon centers throughout Japan. But what if you're not a t-shirt person? What if you're a, I don't know, a doctor? Pokemon has seen right through you with their next announcement. Pokemon Scrubs. In collaboration with Classico, which yes, makes medical scrubs, you can now buy scrubs branded with Pikachu, Eevee, or Snorlax. I don't know how comforting it will be to go to surgery and then see yourself surrounded by people wearing Snorlax merch, but they're available to purchase right now. They might make for good pajamas if you don't have an MD. Sony had a state of play a few days ago. It was probably their best one. It had a good mix of games that are actually coming out this year and some major updates on some high-profile titles. The biggest new game, although it's actually a remake of an old game, is Resident Evil 4 Remake by Capcom coming out March 24th, 2023. Okay, I gotta get this off my chest. The trailer starts with an R. Then the R turns into an N. Then it spells out Resident Evil. I don't associate N with Resident Evil. I'm still thinking about this days later. The graphical fidelity of this remake is really incredible, like their past RE engine titles. However, I am not an RE fan at all and don't like scary games, so I will sit this one out. Capcom had more to show and presented Street Fighter VI, updated logo and everything. The biggest new addition is a world tour where you can explore Metro City in third person. The official site doesn't have a lot of detail, but you can walk around and interact with the environment. Street Fighter has always been criticized for its lack of single player content, especially compared to something like Smash or Mortal Kombat. So I'm glad that they are making big strides towards giving people who aren't rock stars online something interesting. Maybe it's asking too much, but I would be completely satisfied with Street Fighter VI at launch if I had a good 15 hours or so of engaging single player content. In terms of the actual fighting, the big new mechanic is the drive system where you fill up a bar to execute a number of actions. Drive Impact allows you to absorb a hit, Drive Rush lets you dart towards your opponent. Overdrive is like an EX move and so on. This system seems pretty dynamic. It allows players to focus on what they need during the battle instead of just waiting for it to fill to do a super. Another major gameplay mechanic is the quote, modern control scheme, which is geared more towards fighting game newbies. With the classic controls, an overdrive is a quarter circle forward, then square plus R1. With the modern controls, it's just right trigger plus triangle. Fighting games have tried to simplify controls before, even Capcom. Remember the C-Stick from Capcom vs. SNK2 for GameCube? You flick the stick to instantly do a move. It wasn't that intuitive, but very funny since you could chain together attacks way faster than any human should. Also, I prefer SNK's 4-button layout. Street Fighter was always a bit confusing at times, so I'm interested in trying this modern control scheme to see how it fares. The game has an ambiguous date of 2023, but it looks really exciting. A little less ambiguous is the date for Final Fantasy 16, which at least has a season, summer 2023. Square Enix showed off a new trailer with the summons and combat. It seems more like Devil May Cry than any other Final Fantasy title. We only saw one character in action fighting against a single enemy. We also saw big summon battles where each one had a health bar like a fighting game. I don't know about either of these ideas, they don't exactly get me excited. As someone who didn't like FF15's combat at all, I really need to see more elongated battles to get a feel of the flow. And do we even have party members? Final Fantasy games aren't like Souls titles where you have a completely wildly different playstyle depending on your build. Most FF party members have a very specific role. Is Clive just one character of many, or will he have a greater deal of customization? It's a year away, so Square has plenty of time to fill us in. Other tidbits, Stray is coming in July. You're a cat, need I say more? Season is another really interesting indie with a beautiful and colorful art style that comes out this fall. One big surprise was Tunic, which is coming in September. 
I badly want a Switch version, so let's hope we see that in the next few days. One final game I want to touch on is Eternites from Studio Scythe. It has a very anime vibe, but it's actually from an international team, and the lead developer is based out of Korea. The backstory is that he loved Persona 5 so much that he quit his job to make this game. That's very inspiring and a bit scary. It's a mix of a character action game and a dating sim. Eternites has very clean visuals and great music, so it's on my radar. I was worried State of Play would be mostly 2023 titles, and the biggest games are, but things like Stray, Callisto Protocol, Rollerdrome, etc. show that PlayStation still has some notable titles for this year as well. Tokyo-based publisher Furu has announced a new game, Trinity Trigger, developed by Three Rings. It's an action RPG and actually has a demo right now on the Japanese eShop. I tried it out and while it wasn't bad, it didn't really leave much of an impression. It kind of looks like a remastered 3DS game, or maybe even DS. The action is pretty standard. You have three hit combos and a super attack. You can switch between characters pretty quickly, which you really need to do since the AI can be suspect at times. It has a stamina system that reminds me of Secret of Mana. If you just jam on the attacks, you'll be dealing out one or two damage opposed to attacking when your stamina bar is full. The setting has very generic JRPG trappings on the surface. You go to an ice town and there's an inn and an item shop. The ice dungeon has, you guessed it, a giant icicle monster as a boss. I feel like there have been one too many throwbacks to SNES style RPGs. I like to see more diversity and originality in these types of games. It hit Switch in September in Japan and TBA in America. Super Bomberman R Online is ending its online service. The final day will be December 1st, but they have stopped accepting payments. If you have any bomber coins, you can still use them though. This is pretty disappointing news, but also fairly predictable. I had a ton of fun with this game. I actually gave it an award in my Game of the Year episode. It was the best 2020 game I played for the first time in 2021. Complicated name for the award, but you know what I mean. I thought the integration of the Battle Royale genre with classic Bomberman gameplay was really well executed and clever. That said, it's a pretty difficult game to monetize. I mean, I don't care if my bomb explosion is a different color or if my bomber is wearing overalls. Even these special Konami bombers are still very niche in their appeal. Only so many people know what Vic Viper is. And considering it's a Battle Royale, you kind of need a lot of people playing at all times. I played quite a bit during Season 1 on Switch, but then fell off. I just moved on to other games. Konami did announce that other projects in the Bomberman series are currently in development, so I'm sure we will get a new game eventually. The issue with any online Bomberman title, whether it be a mode or a whole game, is that Bomberman is better with more people. So you need to have at least four people ready to jump into a Bomberman game at all times. And I'm not sure if there's enough people out there to make that a reality. Hopefully the next Bomberman title manages to grab some newcomers to the franchise. Nintendo is still adding titles to NSO. NES got Pinball, which is a first-party game actually developed by Iwata. It is one of the pre-Super Mario Bros. Famicom games that actually has Mario in it. He was really a renaissance man before he started jumping on Goombas. It's a pretty good rendition of Pinball, so I recommend playing it a bit just for history's sake. SNES also got some new games. Chrono Trigger... Super Mario RPG and Street Fighter, nah, I'm just joking. The first one is Congo's Caper from Data East, which is the actual Joe and Mac 2, also known as Caveman Combat 2 in Japan. Why was there an absurd number of caveman games in the NES and SNES era? Was Encino Man really that influential? Was there some scientific discovery I'm not aware of? The Jellico Beat-Em-Up Rival Turf also joins NSO. Its sequel, Brawl Brothers, is already on the surface, it's a fairly well-known game that was certainly popular back in the day, but doesn't have that endearing legacy of the best SNES titles. Japan got an additional title, Umihara Kawase. This is the first entry in that franchise. It's a platformer where you fight fish and traverse via a fishing rod. I've never touched the series, but I've always been interested in it, so I might try it out. Developers are doing their own things in terms of retro releases this gen. Gone are the days of just shoving everything onto the virtual console. The first-party offerings on NSO are pretty complete, but yeah, the third-party offerings are incredibly lacking and bizarre. But there are good games on there and some overlooked gems. Do you remember a game by the name of Final Fantasy VII? Square Enix does, and they're going to that well again in their latest Square Enix Cafe collaboration. 
Starting from June 11th, the Square Enix Cafe in Tokyo will be themed around FF7's 25th anniversary. Both the Akihabara and Shinjuku branches will have different goods including coasters. Some other goods include shirts, pin badges, stickers, all that fun stuff. I've actually never been to any Square Enix Cafe, but I might check it out soon and feature it on the podcast. Currently, there's a Chrono Cross collaboration, but I might just wait until they swap over to FF7 before going. Though Chrono Cross, great game, and they just added it recently to the Switch. Japanese gaming phrase of the week. This week's phrase is Kira Taitoru. Kira Taitoru. Yep, this comes straight from our old pal, the English language. It means killer title, a game that is so good that you can't help but buy the hardware it's on in order to play it. The analogous English phrase is killer app. So it's pretty close, but for some reason app is switched to title. App in Japanese is apri, so they take part of the li from application. What do you think is the biggest killer app of all time? Super Mario Brothers? Pokemon? GTA 3? Once again, kira taitoru. Now for the Japanese tweet of the week. I picked one from at chappika38. It's fan art of a fat Pikachu trying to escape a pocket Pikachu. I talked about my experience with this unique piece of hardware on a past episode, so check it out. I don't really use my pocket Pikachu, but it is in my coat pocket, so I'm getting in my steps. As always, the tweet is in the podcast description. Time's up. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. This podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be Sunday, June 19th. See you next time. Matane! Matane!